0: You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. Acts chapter 2 verse 47 should finish the chapter this week. (laughs) Uh, That's actually entirely the plan today. But really, yeah, we're going into Acts chapter 3. just wanted to camp for a second on this last verse. Lord, we do come before you, Lord, just uh, wanting to hear from you, needing to be changed, in desperate need for your word to penetrate our hearts and, and take away all the chaff, all the sin, all the self-righteousness, all the complacency. Just purge that out of us, Lord, and replace our hearts, our hearts of stone, replace them with the heart of flesh today. Just do more than we could even ask or think as we fellowship with one another, And as we have fellowship with you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we uh, read Acts chapter 2, let's just start back at verse uh, 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know, one incredible uh, thing about the book of Acts is the title of the book itself. Some of you maybe, you know, never really pondered the book. You know, what is it about some sort of sharp chopping instrument, you know, or something like that? No, not acts, the acts of the apostles. In fact, it might even be better titled the acts of the Holy Spirit. As we see the Holy Spirit working just in a mighty way, in a powerful way through the early church. I mean, by Acts chapter two, things are happening in the church. 3,000 people have been saved by a a powerful message from Peter on the day of Pentecost. You know, as we read 242, you know, simple New Testament Christianity being lived out. The same vision that our church has was the vision of the church in in the early church, Acts chapter 2. You know, that we would continue steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayer. know, the early church meeting from house to house and, and it wasn't always an, or, you know, an organized 242 group, but so often don't you think it was spontaneous and man, how I long to see that cultivated in this body, that there would be spontaneous home fellowshipping happening. You know, get out your church bulletin and ju- or your uh, church directory and just, you know, randomly select a family to have over that you could have all things in common and, and share with one another and encourage one another, or perhaps just glance across the room today and say, you know, I'm going to purpose to meet that new guy or that new gal or that family that I haven't met yet. And I'm going to have them over know, I'm going to be spontaneous. You know, something I've learned just in, uh, I remember my pastor Rob touched on it so much is that, you know, so often we think, oh, someone else will get to know that, that person, someone else will reach out to them. And you know, what if that someone else is you, someone else is thinking someone else is going to reach out to them. And then that person gets neglected or that family just never gets connected in the body. And I just encourage you guys to, you know, be part of acts two forty two. be, be part of the continuation of the acts of the Holy spirit and have fellowship with one another, get to know each other, break bread, man, something, something special happens when we put a meal on the table, huh? Um, for me, anyways, something magical happens. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to lie to you. Some of you have witnessed that might be a little bit scary, but what you got to love is, and we haven't gotten to camp on it too much, is just the closing verse of the chapter that, you know, they would praise God. They had favor with all people. There was something attractive about this, this community of people that loved each other, you know, and, and others may not have agreed with everything the early church was doing or saying, but there was just something attractive about this Acts two forty two that was going on, and there was a type of favor uh, in their midst. But really, what's incredible is the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, which points to us a, another key aspect of the early church. Aside from the continuing in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, were that missions were happening. <clears throat> missions were happening. You know, missions are a vital sign of a living church. You know, if you could hook the little heart rate monitor up, you know, and, you know, what's the on our church? You know, what's the vital sign on our church? You know, is it perhaps healthy, healthy, you know, sorry, sound effects for heart rate monitors. I don't have them. Eldon, you could probably give us that, huh? You know, okay. You know, uh, but, you know, perhaps there's some sort of a skip in our heartbeat. You know, no missions happening. Okay. Life again, life again, life again, life again, you know, or maybe your life, you know, you've got the apostles doctrine fellowship, no prayer, you know, breaking of bread. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, you know, no missions. And then finally, oh, apostles, you know, man, without the entirety of it, there's just, there's a lack of health. You'll notice something missing. You'll notice, man, there's an emptiness in some part of my week or some part of my day. Where am I missing? Where am I missing the mark? But mission, such a vital sign. And man, would you join me in praying for this church and what our missionary vision should be? How to reach Prineville specifically, maybe other countries, You know, I believe that the Lord wants to do more than just within Prineville in this church, but pray for me about what that, pray with me about what that is for our church. A healthy church is an evangelizing church. I love what Alistair Begg always said, you know, you either evangelize or you fossilize. You know, what are you? Are you an evangelist? Are you, you know, just, there's just that death. There's that part that's just not living in your life. Theologian, all I got was, the, was his last name, Bohr. Hopefully he wasn't a bore, but he had just this one quote that just ministered to me where he said, Acts is governed by one dominant, overriding, and all-controlling motive. This motif is the expansion of the faith through missionary witness in the power of the Spirit. Restlessly, the Spirit drives the church to witness, And continually, churches rise out of the witness. The church is a missionary church. The theologian John Stott said that no self-centered, self-contained church absorbed in its own parochial affairs can claim to be filled with the Spirit. Man, confession here, you know. Perhaps there's area at Calvary Crook County where we are self-centered, self-absorbed. Have no heart for the nations. Have no heart for the community. You know, an, a healthy church has has uh, inreach that is a part of a healthy church, uh, and outreach and upreach. You know, I think an area that we need to grow, in, we've got the inreach going on, and the Lord's developing that, and has you know it's healthy. You know, and the upreach, man, prayer and worship. But what about the outreach? Lord, open our eyes to see what you have for Pineville. Uh, in, in the outreach aspect. But the Holy Spirit, one thing we know from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is a missionary spirit. And so a Holy Spirit filled church is a mission filled church. And so as a result of the apostles witnessing, specifically Peter's witnessing in Acts chapter 2, the church grows 26 times You know, it's, it's size from uh, Acts chapter 120 believers to 3000 believers. And then by the end of today's study, we'll see 5,000 more added to that 8,120 believers by the end of Acts chapter three, that's an incredible thing. This vital mission minded church in Acts chapter five, verse 14, we'll see multitudes of both men and women believed and were added to their number. Constant expansion of the church. A healthy church is a church that the Lord is adding daily, those that are being saved. And I believe that he adds those that are being saved when a church is faithfully doing Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, continuing steadfastly, faithfully given over to those things. There's just this explosion of activity happening, and it's so exciting to read about. Don't you love the book of Acts? Man, it's just so full of life. But notice who did the adding? Who added to the church? The Lord added to the church. Man, what an encouraging word Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Man, you read about men who you know left everything in their life and went to you know the jungles, you know, of, of Timbuktu. You know, gave it all up and gave their whole life to serve to the natives there. And not one person gets saved and he dies there. You know, really an obscurity. No one in the world really caring about his witness. Then another missionary comes in and takes over and there's revival, an explosion of salvation, people getting saved. And, you know, what an encouraging thing for the guy that's in the ground now. Hey, you know, man, you planted, you put the seed there. The next guy came, he watered. He just did the labor that the Lord was calling him to do. It was the Lord that gives the increase and it's the Lord that gets the glory. But he added to the church those who were being saved. You know, he didn't add to the group without saving the people, nor did he save the people without adding them to the church. You know, I believe that if a person is genuinely born again, That there will be a draw to be in fellowship. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in them that they would be added to the church. There would be a draw to assemble together. You know, Proverbs tell us that those that isolate themselves seek their own glory and set themselves up for destruction. Man, when the Spirit of the Lord is living in a person's life, they're going to want fellowship. You know, it's a fruit of the Spirit. When we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him and fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But daily, this adding was happening. That word adding actually means kept adding. He kept adding daily to the church. It wasn't sporadic or occasional. There weren't days where people weren't sharing, and so people weren't added to the church. It was a daily, continual occurrence. And truly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers into the harvest field. Lord, do it. Here in Prineville, the harvest is plentiful. You know, if we could see people as ripe pieces of grain or fresh red apples, you know, just pull up and grab off. That's The Lord just wants us to be faithful to help harvest. Harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Lord, send out workers into the harvest field. Make us sold out for continuous evangelism. And maybe within the next seven days, why don't you pray? Let's pray as a church that the Lord would open our eyes to, on a personal level, how he would give us open eyes to share Jesus with Prineville, maybe even the world, you know, and then as a church, how we would open up those doors and that he would make us passionate for continuous evangelism. But man, you got to love Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. So simple simple new testament christianity and that's why it works that's why people are added to the church again it's been said as the church became what the church or excuse me what the lord wanted it to be the lord did for the church what he wanted it wanted to do you know we need to be what he wants us to be these these key things here and there's such a battle in our lives to keep us away from it but you know Mission minded church, the Lord adding to the church daily, those that were being saved. And then that takes us to Acts chapter three, where we see it in action again, evangelism in action in uh, chapter three, verse one. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And so we've got Peter and John, just this uh, friendship, always part of the Lord's inner circle. You know, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he would always write in his gospel. But, you know, Peter and John together, it's a special thing. John would stick by Peter really in thick and thin. In fact, when Peter denied the Lord in John's gospel, we see that John actually gave him access to Caiaphas's courtyard there where the denials took place. And John was there. You know, John was there watching, saw Peter deny, yet stuck with Peter, was still a friend to Peter. But they went to the temple uh, at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, this ninth hour of prayer. And you know, this is about three in the afternoon the, the Jews had this division of uh, their day where the third hour was nine o'clock in the morning. The sixth hour was noon, the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And so it's about 3 p.m. going up to the temple to pray. You know, the devout Jew would stop and pray three times a day, three times a day. You read about it in the book of Daniel. Remember when they wanted King Darius, the governors and the satraps were jealous of Daniel. And so they made the king, you know, they flattered the king into making this law that if anyone prayed to anyone but uh, Darius, uh, they would be thrown into the lion's den. You guys know the story. And it says that Daniel wasn't afraid of that law. He didn't heed that law, but he went and he knelt and he prayed. It says he prayed three times a day, as was his custom, and man, I just, you know, even recently felt the Lord saying, Rory, why don't you make that your custom? And, you know, I've thought about it and, uh, you know, I just forget, you know, I forget to consistently, I've thought about setting my watch to beep, you know, at nine o'clock at noon and it, you know, and just have these consistent prayer times, but you know, whatever time, whether it's third hour, sixth hour, ninth hour, what about your life? Is there consistent prayer happening that you can say, my life is marked By consistent prayer. You see the pulse of prayer throughout the book of Acts? You know, is there a pulse of prayer throughout your life? The Jewish pattern of praying was 15 minutes. They would sit in silence, just sit in silence. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just sat in silence and not just rattled off your petitions or your intercessions, you know, your requests. Have you ever just sat in silence before the Lord and just listened to him? I found that as you wait and you just let that silence happen, uh, and I know a lot of you women are thinking, Do you have kids, Rory? Have you ever? <laughs> no, you know, it's hard to find the silent time, I'm sure. But, you know, when you find that time of silence, all of a sudden the Lord molds your heart so that the things you pray, they're, they're His heart. You're praying His heart. Your desires are His desires, especially when that happens consistently. Consistent, just waiting on the Lord, being still, listening. But, you know, the Jews, 15 minutes, sat there, sat there in silence. And then a half hour of petition and intercession and request before the Lord. And then after that, 15 minutes of worship. Not a bad pattern to follow. Nothing wrong with that. Certainly don't ever want to become legalistic or, you know, just religious in a routine On the same hand, there's something to be said about consistency. You know, I I think that's a good model for us. G. Campbell Morgan said that the most important part of his prayer time was the 10 minutes after he prayed, after he said amen. You know, he prayed, he prayed, he prayed, amen. Now I'm just going to sit here for a minute. (laughs) I'm just going to be quiet. And Lord, I'm going to let you reveal to me anything that I prayed that. You know, I didn't have a loose hold of as I lifted it up to you, but I selfishly held on. Lord, just anything that you need to speak to me in these 10 minutes. Not a bad plan, but think through your pattern. Think through your schedule. Think through making a pact with your spouse that, hey, you know, I'm not praying at all during the week. You got to take the kids during this period of time so I can have some time of prayer. You know, whatever that might look like, think through your pattern, two to three minutes of silence. Maybe that's all you get, but you're quiet before the Lord. The Lord I'm sure would say, awesome. Two or three minutes. Awesome. You know, five minutes of petition and intercession, you know, two minutes of worship. All you can get is one song, but think through it. Be mindful of your pattern of prayer. It's good to have a plan. You know, Peter and John had a place and a, and a time that they would pray. They went to the temple Good to make that time there. But we're going to see here that the men that God uses are men of prayer. The men that God uses are men of prayer. Do you want to be used? Man, woman, be a man or a woman of prayer. And of course, as always on my heart, the pulse Thursday nights, be a part of it, make it a priority. And I understand and perfectly understand there's some that just can't make it. That is okay. I'm not condemning you or, you know never feel pressured. Like, man, that Rory won't get off my back. But man, your shepherd has a heart to pray and wants you to be there with them. That's all I can say. But in your life, you want to be used, be a man or a woman of prayer. Remember Brian Broderson telling the story that uh, at, at a youth pastors conference, that there was a Nazarene church that was looking for a youth pastor. And they looked and they looked and they looked small little Nazarene church, about 80 people no one, they couldn't find anybody to be their youth pastor. And finally, this little squirrely looking kid, you know, with big glasses and not like the buff, cool kid or something that, you know, high schoolers would want to follow after, but just kind of, you know, didn't have much to be desired, came and said, man, I've been feeling like the Lord wants me to lead the youth group. Oh yeah, you know, we'll think about it, pray about it, denied him the position, you know, and then months went by and they couldn't find anybody and he came back months later and said, man, i really have this burden from the Lord that I I'm to shepherd this group of kids. Well, you know, why don't, why don't we think about uh, part time or uh, temporary position until the Lord brings somebody else? And OK, great. Church of 80 people started out with about six youth in their youth group. And then by the end of the week, they had 14. Then by the end of the month, they had about 40 By the end of the year, they had 250 kids coming to a church with 80 adults. And the church board was just, what are you doing? What is happening? What book have you been reading? What's your program? You know, what kind of games are you playing? He said, do you really want to know? And he whips out an old, you know, day at a glance day planner that's just torn up and ripped apart. And he says, every day I have a list of the kids and on every day I pray for the kids of the youth group. I cover them in prayer. That's the only way I can explain the growth that's happening. Man, we want to see this church grow. You know, man, it's easy to be critical. One thing my pastor Rob always says, it's easy to be critical. Oh, numbers are down. You know, oh, nobody's singing on a Sunday morning. Oh, five people at the pulse. You know, easy to be critical, hard to pray. And man, I think until you're willing to pray over whatever the problem might be, you have no position to talk. <laughs> And neither do I. Man, let's be people of prayer, pressing in for the church, for the people, for the lonely, for the people on the fringes, for the people that are in sin, for the unsaved, for the self-righteous in this church. Men, do you want to be involved in ministry? Pray. Women, pray. The man that God uses is the man that prays. The woman that God uses is the woman that prays just reminded last night of my vows to my wife. And I use these vows when I do weddings, love them. And you know, I love hearing them. They're a good reminder. But I think one part of my vows that I always, it's just, maybe it's the first line or something. So, you know, by the time you get into the vows, that's, that part's gone. But the first part was, I vow to keep you first in my prayers. (laughs) And Man, so much to pray about. You know, let's pray for the church. Let's pray for wisdom to be a pastor. Let's pray for. Man, I haven't been praying for my wife. My wife would be first in my prayers. But if we're gonna be effective in our families and our churches, man, we need to bathe our ministries in prayer, our families in prayer. And so, you know, here we see uh missions gonna be in action. Missions in action. Acts chapter 3. But, you know, it's all part of Peter and John's regular routine as they just go to the temple uh, to pray. And so in their regular routine, you know, uh, just doing their normal thing, and they have an open eye to see the Lord want to move in a certain way. And so Peter and John went up together to the temple. How many of you know the children's song? Peter and John went to pray. I'm not going to do it. You guys don't want it. Okay, maybe. Jacob, Could we close with that song today? That would be awesome. (laughs) Peter and John went up to the temple, the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful to ask alms from those who entered the temple. So a few things about this man lame from his mother's womb in Acts chapter four, we read that this man was 40 years old. So he's a 40 year old man who for 40 years has not been able to to walk. Now, I'm a very visual person, and I don't know if you are too, but as you read this story, there was a man, a lame man from his mother's womb laid at the gate, and he would beg. What goes through your mind? What do you picture? You know, what's the scene? What is this man like? You know, perhaps he's hopeless for 40 years. You know, someone else has been, he's been a burden on someone else for 40 years. I remember when my dad had his stroke and Certainly would never say he was a burden, but for you know, about five months, uh, you know, having a 210 pound man that's not able to walk or wash himself or use the restroom, you know, I only had five months of helping my dad and it was such a joy to be able to do that for my dad. But here, this man for 40 years has been able, unable to do so much for himself, you know, probably discouraged, hopeless. Probably dirty, unable to take a regular bath, maybe a bit scroungy as he's begging and asking for alms, you know, unbathed and malnourished, maybe just trying to get that last shekel of the day so that he could go and buy a, you know, a a morsel of bread, have someone, you know, go get it for him. Hopeless, in despair, maybe even a bit bitter at the lot that life casts for him, you know. You know, something like that probably was the, the, uh, the situation for this man. But daily, he's laid outside this beautiful gate. And as he's laid there, he's probably just as calloused as the people that are walking by. Have you ever, you know, we all in some capacity, but you know, the people out begging, you know, just a bit calloused, you know, especially when you go to Portland and they have thousands of people walk by them in a day and they maybe make a couple bucks, you know, there's not a lot of love on their faces. They're waiting for their next, you know, donation. Most of the time they're doing something else or they're staring at the concrete. All they see is sandals. You know, this man, all he's seeing are these sandals. But he comes outside of the place of religious gathering, he comes to the temple because, you know, and that's a regular thing for even today. You go, the religious people, they're nice. Perhaps they'll give me something. And money perhaps has exchanged or maybe not exchanged hands, but made it into his his cup or whatever. But, you know, no love, no compassion. Probably was a rare thing to get a kind word or a kind glance. And he's laid outside the beautiful gate here, which is on the east side of the temple courts. And man, it was a beautiful gate, 75 feet tall, made out of Corinthian brass, which they say was more beautiful than gold or silver. There's this beautiful gate. And yet, Whose attention is the Lord's on? You know, the Lord's attention is on the man, not the gate. The Lord sees this scroungy, bitter, dirty, hungry, lame, poor man and says, beautiful. This guy is so beautiful. He's going to be beautiful for me. He's going to shine for my kingdom. And it was that day in Acts chapter three that the Lord said, go, Peter, go. It's time. You know, do we see the Lord as beautiful? I mean, do we see the people as beautiful? The Lord certainly does here with this man lame from his mother's womb. And verse three, who's seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms and fixing his eyes on him with John. Peter said, look at it. And so, you know, the man saw Peter. Peter, it says in the King James Version that he fastened his eyes on the man. Something was happening that day as as Peter's vision just locked onto this guy. And you know, there's something incredible about a man of prayer as God uses, because a man of prayer is a man that is led by the Holy Spirit. You know, an incredible thought is for 40 years, this guy sat outside the beautiful gate. Jesus himself had walked by this man multiple times. No doubt. This man had heard about Jesus. Who knows what the guy's heart was about. Jesus probably always wanted to get over and get healed, but never was healed by Jesus. Interesting thought, huh? How many times do we walk by someone in need or someone begging and we're just not feeling led by the Lord? Of course, wanting to walk in the spirit, of course, wanting to be giving and loving and ambassadors for Christ. But there's just, I'm not sensing from the Lord that I'm to do anything today. You know, Jesus was in the same place. <laughs> Jesus was led by the spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted as well as led by who to touch, who to, you know, one day Jesus would go to Samaria, witness to a Samaritan. When one day he'd take a boat over to the tomb of the Gadarenes, you know, he went over there as he was led. He went over to, um, you know, a Caesarea, you know, wherever he would go, he was led. It wasn't necessarily where there was the vast amount of need. It was Lord over here come over here. You know, I need you. I'm a demon possessed boy. Come and heal me. You know, led by the spirit. So for 40 years, this guy begged. And for some reason, even Peter having walked by this man multiple times, for some reason, today was the day that the Holy Spirit said, go, go and and lift this man up. Go and preach Jesus to this man now. And I'll tell you, and some of you know what I mean, but there's times when the Holy Spirit, you know, you're in a crowd, and and picture the scene here, the hustle and the bustle, and people trying to get to the temple and the hour of prayer, and you know, tons of people, and all of a sudden, the Lord just like a magnet takes your vision to one person and fastens your vision on that person. Have you ever had that happen? I've had that happen. (laughs) You know, the Lord just strongly impresses on your heart. Get over there right now and share Jesus with them. You know, and you go over and, you know, it's an incredible thing. You wouldn't know this person out of a thousand people. You wouldn't look at them or give them the time of day. But when the Holy Spirit, as you're led by him, says that person right there. Now, fasten your eyes on them. Be led by the Holy Spirit, man. We got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit when we're ministering in our day to day routines. We got to be willing to be inconvenienced. That's one of my greatest thoughts. I have a heart to witness. You know, I, I know that people are going to hell, but goodness gracious, I need to get my gasoline and I got to get home, you know, or I got to get my groceries or I've got my schedule to keep, or, you know, this is my schedule. I got to keep to it. And the Lord's like, what are you doing right here? This guy or this gal, they're discouraged. They're depressed. They're lame. Or I want to work an incredible miracle through you right now, but you've got to keep to your schedule. Oh, sorry, Rory, that I'm inconveniencing you. Man, may we be willing. Lord, inconvenience me. There is no minute of my day that is off limits to you. You use me, Lord. Lord, let me see people with your vision. And so not only is a man that is useful, a man of prayer, but a man that is useful or a woman that is useful for ministry are men and women that are led by the Holy Spirit open eyes, vigilant Lord, any part of my normal routine that you want to, you know, use me in this person's life or this person's life. Someone I see every day, Lord. And that's become our prayer as a family, as we pray in the morning is Lord, just let us see the opportunities, you know, use us today. Don't let today be a waste for you. Jesus led by the spirit, you know, Romans chapter eight, verse four says that as many are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Man, if we're a son of the Lord, a fruit of that is just a tenderness to the Holy Spirit. Lord, lead us here. Lead us there. But uh, they, they fixed their eyes on him. They fastened their eyes on them and said, look at us. Peter said, look at us. That's kind of an interesting command, don't you think? I mean, as you're going through the street, someone's begging, you just kind of toss a coin in or whatever. You know, some of you $30 bills Oh wait, they don't have those, but you know, you're just like dropping it in and you're, you're gone. But Peter wanted this man's attention. Look at us. And man, there's something about the the contact between the eyes, you know, as you're able to communicate the gospel, there's something about, Hey, I want you to look at me. I want you to just sense the burden of my heart for the gospel as I share it with you. And I remember one of these times in my life where, after sharing with someone, I was in the the, uh, John F. Kennedy Airport in New York, and we, uh, my friend and I, had gotten directions from a couple sitting at uh, a table. And uh, as we'd walked away, just the Lord said, "Get back there right now and share the gospel." And I left my friend and I just turned around. He's like, where are you going? And I just, I had to be obedient. I just turned around right away, walked back. And, and I started to share the gospel with these people. And I just, for some reason, I didn't say look at me, but they were looking at me. And I began to weep as I shared the gospel. You know, I just began to cry and I'm telling them about Jesus. And, you know, there was just something about, look at me, you <laughs> know. Look at me, I'm, I'm sobbing for you because I know how much you desperately need a savior. You need someone to love you in your life. You know, even look across the room today. Maybe there's someone that the Lord would have you go minister to. Love on, encourage, just pray for it. You know, man, I don't know what's going on in your life. You know, and maybe we barely know each other, but I'm just sensing the Lord telling me, you know, let, let me pray for you. I want to be led by the spirit today in everything that we do. Verse five. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Beautiful, you know, scripture here. Silver and gold, I don't have what I have, I give you. You know, sometimes we don't have money to give. Now, Peter wasn't broke. We remember the last chapter that the community had all things in common. He wasn't starving. He probably had a few denarius in his pocket to give, you know, but or maybe he didn't, maybe genuinely didn't have any money on him. But the thing is, is that he knew what this man really needed. Wasn't a couple more shekels, a couple more denarius. But what he really needed was something that was much more valuable and much more abundant than any amount of currency, Jesus Christ. And I think it's a very useful example for us in the church today. We've had so many people come in, uh, especially in the wintertime, but they're still coming in. This economy, people are needing help financially. They come into the church and, and we have an application that we give people now. It just, you know, kind of tells them where we're at as a church, and we want to find out about them and their needs. And we just say on there, you know, it might be that we would have to say, like Peter, silver and gold we don't have. But we do have Jesus, and we want to give him to you, and we want to come alongside you, and we want to encourage you in the name of Jesus. But we don't have a lot of money either. Silver and gold we just don't have. And so, you know... We've got to be sensitive, again, sensitive to the Holy Spirit when he would have us give. You know, I think our primary, you know, as we studied last week, our primary giving needs to be to the church and to the people in the church. You know, in Galatians, Paul says in chapter 6, verse 10, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are in the household of faith. You know, yes, we need to give, and yes, we need to be, you know, uh, open-eyed to give Jesus to people, but man, especially the household of faith, our resources need to be given here to the people and the brothers and sisters around us who are in need. And then of course, you know, go out and you know what I've found so much more effective than just giving a couple dollars to someone who's begging is actually buying them a burger or a pizza or something like that and sitting down and eating with them, having conversation with them, telling them about Jesus loving on they're able to see your love in action and that's a powerful thing you know what i have peter says what i do have i give you it's not silver or gold but in the name of jesus christ of nazareth the name speaks of the power where's the power come from the name (laughs) the name it's in jesus christ of nazareth that you're going to be able to rise up and walk thomas aquinas back in the dark ages Uh, he walked in the Vatican and he walked in on the Pope as the Pope was counting gold coins. And the story goes that the Pope said to Thomas, well, Thomas, no longer do we have to say silver and gold do I not have. And Thomas said, yes, but no longer can we say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And I think there's such a lesson in that, in that when the church begins to get money so often, money becomes our power rather than a reliance on the Holy Spirit or our resources or our three church vans, you know, or our massive building or this or that. And there's just less reliance on the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just sad. It's human nature. So often we replace the power of the Holy Spirit with the power of money, you know, and and so we always want to be sensitive in that to the Lord. And so uh, Peter said, you know, uh, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And man, what a step of faith that must have been for Peter. Can you imagine? I mean, some of you have probably taken steps of faith like this. I, it's scary. I remember, you know, in high school, I remember there was a little um, little girl in a wheelchair and uh, just completely handicapped, moved her wheelchair by blowing into a straw and just a young, zealous Christian, just, man, I, I just always had a heart. I want to go up to her and raise her up out of the wheelchair. Oh, but then it's not going to happen. And everyone's going to laugh at me and, you know, and then pick on me because I've been picking on the little paralyzed girl. And oh, great. You know, and oh, I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. And Peter, no doubt had the same fear. You know, what if I, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk? No, really, right now. Okay, no, hold on. Okay, hold on. Okay, uh, put you around my back and, you know, uh, oh, 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 everyone going to the temple sees it. Oh, just completely canceled myself out on the nomination for Pope, you know. <laughs> Picking on handicapped kids is not a good way to get into the Vatican, you know. And, uh, you know, we all struggle with that doubting. But, you know, James has such a good warning to us that, man, when we need wisdom, ask for it. And then the principle of, if any man doubts, you know, he's like a, he's like a wave tossed in the ocean. He's worse than a non-believer. Don't let anyone who doubts suppose they'll think, uh, get anything from the Lord. But man, it, what a thing is the minute we sense the moving of the Holy spirit on our heart, just to act, just to do it. You know, just that first step of faith is like being on the top of Mount Everest with a snowball. And all we have to do is just take that step and throw the snowball and that snowball, gets into a giant ball, and then becomes an avalanche. That's what the Lord does with our mustard seed faith. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, tells us that there's a spiritual gift called the gift of faith or the gift of wonder-working faith. Some of you might remember that was my first message I ever taught on here at this church when I was uh, kind of applying to be the pastor here, was the gift of faith. It's a trust thrust or extreme faith. You know, it's dumb to doubts and it's deaf to discouragement and it's blind to impossibilities. You believe so much in what the Holy Spirit is moving on your heart at that moment that even if the Lord were asking you to fly, you would fly. (laughs) You're doing it out of faith. It's an incredible thing. And sometimes we just, Lord, I'm sending you telling me to do this. I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, give me the gift of wonder working faith. Help me. But Peter was bold and brave, and he stepped out to share, and he stepped out to speak. And you know, sometimes you guys, this isn't just for pastors or ministers, or, you know, this is for you. Just take that step. So often, if you just, oh Lord, I'm sensing you're telling me to share with this person. And, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to remember the scripture reference or he's kind of totally beat me on the evolution idea. I don't even know what to do. You know, just open your mouth. That's why Paul said, hey, pray for me. I believe it's to Ephesus. Pray for me that I might open my mouth and make known the mystery of the gospel. Is there anyone here that can testify to that? That if you'll just open your mouth, have you ever been there with me? Just, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. Uh, okay, Lord. Uh, uh, but, you know, and all of a sudden, the Lord is saying things out of your mouth. You're like, "Where'd that come from? I don't know." Whoa, I told. well, I don't remember even reading First Corinthians. Wow, where'd that verse come from? You know, and oh goodness, yeah, the Holy Spirit does. It's not dependent on you. You're just a vessel. Open your mouth. Step out in faith. That goes with our spiritual gifts. And maybe you're a prophetess, or maybe you're a prophet, or you have the gift of words of knowledge, or words of wisdom, or you know. In our, you know, in the right scene, a gift of tongues or interpretation, you know, you got to step out in faith. And there might be times when you're wrong. That's okay. We got to be humble and be willing to be coached and willing to, hey, you know, actually, in the scripture it says this. And hey, let's pray about that. I really appreciate that you were brave enough to step out and to do that. Keep it up. Don't be afraid, man. We need to step out in faith. You know, Peter, it would have been so embarrassing if the guy would have fallen down, but. You know, he was bold in the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse seven, and he took him by the right hand and lifted him up and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. You know, what's awesome is that we have a physician writing this letter. There's a physician that as it was as he was standing up he you know heard the you can almost hear the crackling or the the dislocation of the ankle bones popping back in you know and the joints and the sinews and the muscles just becoming immediately strengthened you know not only has there been 40 years of disjointedness and bones out of place but there's been this atrophy of the muscles they haven't been used for 40 years We're going to read in a second that this man, all of a sudden, the great physician is also the great physical therapist, you know, and this man leaps up and jumps and runs and leaps and praises the Lord. He has strength as, as he's healed immediately. We read verse eight. He verse, yeah, verse eight. So he leaping up stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Something we note about a healing from the Lord, a biblical healing, is that it's immediate and it is total and it is confirmable as this physician, Luke, confirmed the healing. And so sad to see just, you know, some of the uh, kind of the, the health and wealth movements and the, you know, it is not God's will that you're ever sick or that you ever have trials. And, you know, and you see these people that have, you know, crutches little boy i watched on YouTube, a little eight year old boy going up to a faith healer and throwing his crutches down and walking around on his uh, legs that he should not have been walking and falling down and, you know, and and being told that you are healed and not healed. You know, there's a discouragement to that. And man, I pray the Lord heals that kid. I believe the Lord can heal that kid, but an actual healing. If you're going to say the Lord healed me, it's confirmable and it's total, you know, It's what we see in the scripture. It's immediate here as this man walked and leaped. You know, the leaping is a reference to the Messianic age in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. It's just a proof that the Messiah has come. He's come and his power is here through the power of the Holy Spirit. Walking, leaping, praising God. You know, the healing brought glory to God. It didn't bring glory to Peter. It didn't bring glory to the revivalist. It didn't bring glory to the gift of healing itself. But the healing brought glory to the Lord as this man praised the Lord. And it's so neat to look at how we are so much like this man. You know, we are poor and lame from sin. We're sitting outside the temple and and away from fellowship with God. As the Bible tells us, there's a middle wall of separation between us and God. And that is our sin. And maybe you today, you've never understood worship and why seeing together. That's a little funky to me. Raising hands. What in the world is that all about? Reading this leatherback book that's kind of monotonous and a bit boring. And, you know, man, I would ask, you know, ask yourself, ask the Lord, man, am I even a Christian? Or am I still in the same place as this man? Lame and wounded by my sin. There's a wall of separation where I can't understand the things of God. I can't understand why people would worship. can't understand why people would take an hour and a half out of their day to pray. Ridiculous makes no sense to me. I got a lot of better things to do. And perhaps for you, that middle wall of separation is still up and you're still paralyzed spiritually. You know, this man, he had nothing to offer for his salvation, nothing to offer for his healing. In fact, he was a beggar just like we are as sinners, nothing to offer. But when Jesus came, he gave us the gift of salvation. It was not of any of our works that we did, but it was by his grace that we're saved, his gift to us that we're saved. Peter brings this gift of healing, this gift of salvation. And then we're like this man in that we give evidence of what God has done by our Christian walk. As we walk with Jesus, as we leap with Jesus, as we praise God, people see us and they're blown away by us. Psalm chapter 40, verses one through three, you know, it's a beautiful Psalm. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. You know, he brought me up out of the miry pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon the rock and established my footsteps. And he's put a new song in my heart. The psalmist says, and many will see and many will fear when people see the the Lord take you from the state of a crippled, separated from God to a person that loves Jesus and is completely given over to him. They see that they want that people see it and people fear. In fact, that's exactly what happens here in Acts chapter three. It says there in verse nine, all the people saw him walking and praising God. Then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to this guy. You know, they, they knew who this man was. There was no doubt for 40 years. They'd seen him. In fact, in a couple of chapters, we're going to read that Even the guys that hated what was going on this day, they go, hey, there's no way we can argue with that there was a legitimate healing happening here. Reminds me of John chapter nine, the man at the pool of Bethesda being healed. Uh, But we can't argue with it. A Definite healing happened, validates the gospel. But these people saw this, they knew what had happened and they were full of wonder. And I love what that word wonder means. It means to be dumbfounded, or stupefied, or astounded, or it says also they were full of wonder and amazement, which is the Greek word ecstasy. It speaks of bewilderment, you know? Think of, was there ever a time, I, I thought for quite a while yesterday, was there ever a time in your life that you were dumbfounded? I mean, just jaw to the ground, ha, ha, ha. You know, bewildered, ecstasy. Some of you have a past. We won't go there, you know. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know have, have you ever, anything ever in your, I don't think there's really, I mean, incredible when your baby's born, but, you know, you've heard the stories and, oh, this is incredible. But I'm not like, oh, don't fall backwards or faint. Some of you, maybe you've seen something like that. For these people, it was something that bewildered them. You know, imagine going to the temple after the miracle had happened. And this guy's jumping like a deer all over the place, you know, <laughs> trying out those breakdancing dancing moves. He's always wanted to try, you know, and Hey, isn't that Bill, you know, Hold, no, no, it must be his twin brother or his cousin or something. Oh, it's him. What happened? I cannot believe it. That's an incredible thing. It's a, it's a miracle that validate the gospel and it's something that led to 5,000 people being saved. These people were bewildered. They were amazed. They were full of wonder. Verse 11, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So this lame man is no longer lame. It says now he's healed, but he's holding on to Peter and John. I don't know, maybe he just doesn't have his, his leg, you know, whatever they call his, his, uh, walking legs on or, you know, he's still like, "Whoa, I'm not really sure what to do here. Or maybe he's just so excited. He's just got these guys under his arms. You guys, this is incredible. But all the people ran together. No doubt the 3000 Christians that were in the area ran together. And then also all the people at the temple, I mean, 5,000 people are going to get saved. So you can only imagine how many thousands of people were around on the temple mount to, to find out what was happening here. No doubt, just an incredible scene there on Solomon's porch, which is just a columned porch area where people would come together. And I so love Acts chapters three through five about what happens here and the message, the preaching that happens and the persecution that we're going to study the next probably three or four weeks here at Solomon's porch that over in Corvallis, our high school group, we named our youth group Solomon's porch it was a place it was a place of evangelism it was a place of a work of the holy spirit it was a place where peter said i cannot help but declare the things i've seen and heard we're going to study that in a couple of weeks you know oh man solomon's porch it's an incredible place as we're going to see in the next few weeks But they all came together. They were all greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Just like in chapter 2, when everyone was wondering what was up with the gift of tongues, all these people speaking in unknown languages, you know, what did he do? He saw it as an opportunity to preach the gospel and to explain from the scriptures what was happening and that Jesus was the Messiah. And here he is again, just willing to be prompted by the Holy spirit. He saw an opportunity and he tossed the snowball down the hill and he's going to watch that snowball just whoosh, just grow to that little mustard seed size faith. Uh, he just watches it grow. And so he says, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why do you, uh, Looks so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk. Now, first of all, he says, "Hey, Israelites, why are you marveling this? Your God, who's been with you from day one, has been a God of miracles, a God of wonders, a God who has parted seas for you and provided food and wiped out hundreds of thousands of your enemy in battle. You know, why are you amazed at this? This would just be normal, everyday stuff to you." not to mention it's prophesied uh, by the prophets that this stuff would happen. These types of miracles would happen. But then he also says, and why do you look so intently at us as though by our own godliness or works, this man is now healed. And a beautiful thing about Peter here is that he steps away from the glory and proceeds to give glory to whom it's due. It wasn't Peter or his power or his spirituality or some funky magic trick that he had or even his own godliness or righteousness that brought about this healing. You know, he does an incredible thing. You know, this was a moment in Peter's life that he could have been shelved in the ministry. If he would have taken glory for himself. Yes, I did. These hands have something incredible about them. If whenever I touch somebody, they just turn to gold, you know, or they begin to walk or, you know, the demons get, you know, I'm incredible. But he took Billy Graham's counsel very well back then. You know, when Billy Graham says, hey, ministers, don't touch the gold. Don't touch the women and don't touch the glory. There's no way to get shelved quicker in ministry than to think I am worth a little pat on the back every now and then I am worth some accolades. God needs me in this ministry. No, God can use a donkey. God shelved Moses after Moses's incredible ministry in the wilderness. God didn't need Moses. God does not need Rory. I am nothing. Whatever ministry you're in, if you're an elder, if you're in the sound crew, if you're a children's ministry worker, you watch out. You want to get shelved, start looking for glory, start looking for accolades, start appreciating the pats on the back. One Sunday, Charles Spurgeon had got done preaching and at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he had this giant pulpit that actually had a spiral staircase to it. That was the sound system of the day, being able to project... And as he wound his way down from the pulpit, a woman rushed up immediately after the Bible study and just said, Oh, pastor Spurgeon, I just so loved your message so much. And I just had to be the first one to come congratulate you on such a great message preached. And Spurgeon said, you're too late. Satan's already told me that <laughs> I've had someone tell me that before actually. And i was <laughs> just trying to be encouraging, you know, uh, but Yeah, we got to give glory where glory is due. And Satan wants us to take the credit and the accolades upon ourselves here. And uh, then he goes on to say, you know, man, it wasn't our power, our godliness, our righteousness. It was nothing of ourselves that made this man walk. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he was determined to let him go. Now, Peter's, uh, sermon at Pentecost preached the Messiahship of Jesus. Now he's going to go through the Torah and he's going to preach the repentance of the Jews now. And the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are all their God glorified Jesus whom they denied. God glorified Jesus. They denied Jesus. And it's incredible to see Peter filled with just as much boldness and bluntness and remember his Pentecostal preaching, you crucified Jesus, you killed him. He doesn't shy away from it and he doesn't water it down. The truth is you killed Jesus. And he's just as bold here uh, to the, preach the truth. Uh, in verse 13, you know, Pilate was going to let him go. Pilate had determined to let Jesus go. Verse 14, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted. Do you remember Bar- uh Uh, Barabbas, Barabbas, son of the father, the false Christ, uh, was exchanged for Jesus there. Um, In verse 15, and you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So, you know, Pilate was determined to let Jesus go, but they wanted this murderer, Bar, Bar I always want to call him Barnabas, Barabbas, (laughs) Uh, instead of Jesus. Now notice some of Peter's titles for Jesus in these verses. These are messianic titles that were only for the Messiah. He's called his servant, or it speaks of a servant to the king. And you can read about the sin bearing servant in Isaiah 52 verse 12 through Isaiah 53. And it's all about the servant ruler, Jesus, who was going to come and be wounded for our transgressions. So Jesus was the father's servant, the king's servant, and he, you know, he served you guys and he served me by putting our needs above his own. Hopefully it's become one of your favorite verses, Mark 10:45 as it is mine, that the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's a servant. He's the holy one you read about there. Or hagios, which means he's sacred. He's blameless. Jesus was ceremonial, ceremonially consecrated. Even the demons, remember in Mark chapter one, when the demons said, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? You know, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. O holy one of God. They knew he was the holy one. They knew he was the Messiah. Even the demons knew that. What else is he called? What's the other title he's given by Peter? He's the holy one and the just, the equitable, the innocent, the holy and righteous one. Jesus is right. He's the right one. The Messiah is right. And they've killed, what's the other title? The author of life or the prince of life or the chief of life. You killed him. You know, he gives, he's the giver of life. But the Lord raised him from the dead and we're witnesses of that, Peter says. Remember in chapter two, the way Peter puts it, it was not possible that Jesus would be held by death. He's the author of life. How can you kill and let him stay dead? It's not possible. He creates life because he's God. He's the chief of life. Uh, a man named Walter Wink said that killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on the head of it. <laughs> You know, when they killed Jesus, it just made all these seeds go out. Now, every one of us is a seed for the gospel. We have spread to Prineville, Oregon. You know, that's an incredible thing. And so he says, you've killed the prince of life, but God has raised him up. He didn't stay dead. He's alive today. <clears throat> and we're all witnesses of that. And Peter just constantly had the resurrection, a key theme of his preaching that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive Verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. How was this man healed? Through faith, through believing. And you know what, I would venture to say it was more Peter's faith than the man's faith. It was Peter's act. It was Peter's uh, stepping out in obedience Living out his faith and and the glory all goes to the Lord for the healing there. Verse 17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Now, you got to love verse 17 because you see some compassion and understanding in Peter. I know that you and your rulers did it in ignorance. There was an understanding there for Peter that they didn't fully understand that they, you know, that Jesus was the Messiah and that they were killing God. You know, Jesus himself said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant. First Corinthians chapter two, verse eight says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Peter says, I know that you guys were ignorant when you killed Jesus. Flip over to Acts chapter 17, verse 30 says, truly these times of ignorance, God overlooked. Doesn't mean that there's not consequences for ignorance, but the punishment, it's different when you're ignorant, you know, and, and he's, you know, truly God in his mercy, he's overlooked these times of ignorance. And he's speaking about some idol worship that was going on, but you might underline that word now, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he's ordained. He is given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. And so, okay, you know, you've been ignorant, you've been sinning in ignorance, you've been ignoring the truth, you've been playing the dumb card, but now you know, and here today, if you're here today, now you know, Jesus is God. Now, you know, you're going to stand before him one day, and it's time today to put away the ignorance card because you're informed. You need to believe upon Jesus Christ and be saved. Your own works are not going to save you. It's time to repent. And Peter himself says, I know that you and your rulers did it in ignorance, but the first word of verse 18 is that word. But, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he's fulfilled. It, it's reality check not ignorant time. It's pay attention time. It's act time. It's listen and and receive these things into your heart. He's fulfilled these things. Verse 19, repent, might underline it. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So the actions here, we have repent. What do we do now? Okay, I've been ignorant. So what should I do? I don't want to be ignorant anymore. Okay, repent means change your mind. Change your mind about who Jesus is. That he's not just some prophet from 2000 years ago. He's not just a guy from Nazareth. He's not anything but Lord and God and Messiah, which is everything. (laughs) Change your mind about who he is. Believe on him as the Messiah. And then convert. That word convert means to turn back, to be changed. Let the Lord change you. You can't do it on your own. Spurgeon also said the sinner and hell are married, but repentance proclaims divorce right now. If you haven't repented of your sin and your attitude towards Jesus, you are going to hell. (coughs) So repent right now. God's giving you a chance. He's overlooked your times of ignorance, but today he commands that you repent because one day you're going to stand before him in judgment. Be converted, be changed. Man, the world, to the world convert or converted, it's such a horrible word to them, huh? You're just trying to convert me. Yeah, I don't want you to go to hell. I want you to be changed. I want the life that Jesus died for you to have. I want you to have it. Sorry, (laughs) be converted. Be divorced from hell and know that you're going to go to heaven. Are you certain that you've been converted today? You can know today. Just give your life over to Jesus and ask his Holy Spirit to change you. And you can know as you leave this place that you have have been converted. There's three results of repentance here. Your sins will be blotted out or washed away or obliterated. You know, back in the day, ink didn't go into paper the way it does now because they didn't have the acid. And so you could just wipe it away and start, you know, wipe off that piece of parchment and do it again. Every sin that we have written down that we've committed can be washed away by Jesus and we can be forgiven and made new. It's also a messianic phrase from Isaiah 44. Our sins will be blotted out. The second thing, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And then as you read in Revelation, there's a river coming from the throne of heaven that just the Lord wants to saturate you with. He wants to refresh you like a desert just being watered and flowers coming up. That's what he wants your life to be. The times of desert are over. You can be refreshed in Jesus today. Times of refreshing. You know, Isaiah chapter 28 verse 12 says, This is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing yet they would not hear. And sadly, that day that Peter preached, not all Israel heard, not all Israel repented. But what if they had? The next thing in verse 20 says, and Jesus Christ will be sent to you. He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. I believe and I think that if that day all Israel would have repented, that Jesus would have come back. I'm glad that they didn't because or else I wouldn't get to partake of what the Lord is going to do. But you know, I I think that he would have come back and he would have set up his kingdom there. If everyone would have repented, you know, in fact, it's crazy to read of the, the, uh, Roman kind of governor at the time in 40 AD sent a convoy of Roman soldiers with a image of himself that was to be set up in the temple and worshiped, just like Daniel chapter nine says, but Israel didn't repent, you know, and this man was killed. And, uh, And so the the Roman convoy was sent back to Rome and that didn't happen. So what the Lord would have done, nobody really knows, but maybe, you know, the kingdom and everything would have set up back then if Israel would have repented. But Jesus would have been sent. Verse 21, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Speaking of the millennial reign there, when Jesus comes back and sets up the world to its pre-fall states, an incredible study to do, how awesome the millennial uh, earth is going to be, a paradise for sure where Jesus will be and all the prophets spoke of it. Verse 22, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among your brethren. Him, you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses foretells this prophet, the Messiah, that anything you hear, you need to do And he came and these people, these Jews who really Moses was like a God to them. Paul had to correct them for that in Hebrews. I think it was Paul that wrote it, but whatever, you know, he had to correct them. Jesus is better than Moses and Moses foretold, Hey, here's a prophet's going to come. Listen to him. And anyone who doesn't do what Jesus says, oh my goodness, man, destruction is going to come upon them. Yes. And all the prophets from Samuel. So Samuel's considered the next prophet out since uh, Moses uh, and all those who follow, as many have spoken, have also foretold these days. Do you guys know Bible prophecy? Can you guys think of Old Testament passages that speak of Jesus? Man, it's the Old Testament is thick. Psalm twenty-two, Isaiah fifty-two, Isaiah fifty-three, Psalm sixteen, Psalm one ten. You know Genesis chapter twenty. Oh man, just all the Old Testament—it all speaks of Jesus. And that's Peter's message: the whole Old Testament speaks of Jesus. And you are sons of the prophets. These guys should have known that. And all of the covenants which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Jesus. Galatians tells us that they didn't say in your seeds, as in plural, but in your seed, as in Jesus, all the nations of the world will be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Jesus came first to Israel, but they rejected him. And so Romans chapter 11 says that the gospel then went out to the Gentiles, that the Gentiles would get saved. If you're not a Jew here today, you're a Gentile. And as the Gentiles get saved, we will then turn and provoke Israel to jealousy by our deep relationship with the Messiah. And Israel will go, what have we been missing out on? How are those people in Prineville, you know, loving on the Messiah and here we are at the temple, man, may we do that with our lives, provoke Israel to jealousy. Let's set our things aside. I think we'll skip a worship song since we went a little long today. And, you know, just as we just have our heads bowed and our eyes closed as we respond, this message was spoken to religious people people that went to the temple every day, people that had the scriptures memorized, people that were good, quote unquote, people, and yet a message went out to them to repent, to repent of their self-righteousness, that they thought anything that they did, I'm a good person, or I go to the temple three times a day, or I pray, or I know the Bible, or I'm a Jew, or I'm of the tribe of this or that, none of it mattered. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And Lord, today I pray that you would bring strong conviction upon this church against self-righteousness. Lord, if we think that it's anything that we do that makes us okay with you, Lord, strongly correct us, Lord. It is nothing that we do that makes us okay with you. It is only what you've done, Jesus, that imputes uh, righteousness into our account. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. Lord, as we're rushed today to get out of here, I pray that we would just savor and meditate upon your word for the rest of the day. Give us great steps of faith. Make us a mission-minded church and evangelists. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.cdc.org calvarycrookcounty.com or you can write to us at PO Box 378 Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening and God bless.